So Jesus is talking to his followers here, and he's giving them words to, to pray. And again, these are pretty familiar to us. We've probably recited them. We've probably heard them recited in some, in some church-like setting before. But if Jesus gives us these specific words to pray, I think that they're probably pretty important and, and, would, and, and it would benefit us to slow down and think about these words as they're spoken. What does Jesus mean when he is talking about this? And I think there's one question I always have when I get to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Is Jesus so far in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us, we've seen so many times that Jesus is concerned with motivation. What is the motivation behind the things that we do and how do we act? We just got done looking at six different things that Jesus gives us uh, that show us in verse 48 of chapter 5 what it means to be perfect or what it means to be whole, what it means to be a complete person um, as our heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus tells his followers in verse 20, uh, in verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying leading up into our text this morning and leading up into chapter 6, he's saying that I, I want you to be whole. I want you to be complete. I want what goes on outside to match what's going on inside. The inward transformation that has taken place, if you are in Christ, what goes on outside much must match that. And Jesus is combating religious leadership of his day who are focused solely on the external. They're focused solely on the things that they do, but not necessarily the heart or motivation behind it. So when we get to uh, chapter 6, and we, we, when we looked at this in our first week, we looked at uh, giving. Jesus gives three pillars of Jewish religious life, giving, prayer, and fasting. Uh, in verses 1 through 18 in Matthew chapter 6, he gives these three things. But he clearly wants to demonstrate that it's about motivation. Before our text this morning, before we get to the, the, the Lord's Prayer, he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. As opposed to verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is concerned in this instance with motivation. And so when we get to the Lord's Prayer, I think sometimes we look at this, or I do at least, this is a question I have, is why are you giving me the words to pray if you're concerned with my motivation and what's going on inside me? Why does he just give them sort of this prayer? And it, it feels like, isn't praying a canned prayer uh, disregarding inward motivation? And the answer is no, it's not. No, it's not. If you've been in sort of an evangelical church setting for, for your, any point at any time in your life, this sort of thing sometimes offends our sensibilities reciting prayers together. And we think that something is prescribed to us, then it can't be authentic. We like the word authentic. But that's silliness. And Jesus was instructing his disciples. The incarnate word of God is instructing his disciples the words to speak. And when they address their heavenly father, there was this two-way relationship between prayer and motivation and praying. A heart that is open to the truth that Jesus tells his disciples to pray will certainly be formed by them. Let me say that again. A heart that is open to the words that Jesus tells his disciples to pray will certainly be formed by them. And then the other side of that coin, 
The words that Jesus tells his disciples to pray will certainly grow in meaning to the disciples whose heart is open to them. The words that Jesus tells his disciples to pray will certainly grow in meaning to the disciple whose heart is open to them. So being formed by them and, and then being and growing in our understanding and a deeper realization of who God is by what Jesus tells us to pray here. So we're going to slow down this text. Like I said earlier, we're going to slow down. We're just going to look at verse 9 this morning. We're going to take this really slow. We're going to process this together. Remember, if you, we talked about prayer last week. We talked about prayer as being a counterformative practice. Prayer is a counterformative practice. It's something that doesn't fit into our day nicely, but it's something that requires us to step out of our day altogether. I think that might be a bit of a lie that we've believed as, as Christians for a long time, is that we can just fit it into Really, no, we have to be able and willing to step out of our day to pray, to pray regularly. Martin Luther famously said this, I have so much to do. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. We're so often consumed with seeing perceivable results that those words make no sense. How am I ever going to get anything done in my day if I spend the first three hours in prayer? How am I ever going to see any results in my life? How am I ever going to advance in my career? So even when we, what we're going to do this morning over the next few weeks is really put on the brakes. Think about the Lord's Prayer verse by verse. And so let's, let's begin. Let's look at verse 9. Just look at the, the first few words that Jesus says to his disciples. He says, pray then like this. And this isn't even part of the prayer, but we're going to break this down because it's important. Pray then like this. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And they got, again, not just the motivation behind it, but actually the words. And these aren't the only words that we pray, but he's giving them uh, an example of something that should be together, individually and together, something that should be regularly prayed. In in the parallel passage in the book of Luke, Luke Luke 11, 1 and 2, uh, Luke writes this. He says, now Jesus was praying to a certain place, in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. He's actually telling them what to say. He's not just giving them like principles or like an outline or some helpful hints in prayer. He's actually telling them what to pray. And this is the how that Jesus wants to communicate. Not the motives, but the words that reflect the correct motives. And the whole reason we have the book of Psalms, the whole reason we have the Psalter, is because they were uh, formalized and formatted prayers deemed worthy of recitation in public, oftentimes set to music. These were prayers that were given to God's people. And these words that are a means of spiritual formation, they are truths that are meant to transform us by the renewal of our minds so that we're not conformed to the world. And it begins with us as a whole, as a body. So as we look at this, pray then like this, Jesus says, what's the first word? It says pray, but actually there's an an implied word before that. I'm going to go grammar nerd on you right now. There's this thing that we have in the English language called implied subject when when there's an imperative. So when a command is given, you don't always have to state the subject of the sentence. So if it's bedtime and you look at your kids and you say, go get ready for bed. 
right? There's no subject in this sentence. You just say, go get ready for bed. What you're saying is you, you, my child, go get ready for bed. And it's implied there. So there's an implied you here. And this you is plural. It's, he's addressing a, a, the group of his disciples. He's saying, but what, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray, all of you, together. He says, you all pray like this. Now, why is that important? Why would I even bother pointing that out? Was Jesus' disciples, I think the implications are clear here. Jesus expected his followers to pray both individually and corporately. You all pray, like he says in private earlier, but then corporately, together, pray then like this. Pray these words together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, writes this. It is, in fact, the most normal thing in the common Christian life to pray together. It is, in fact, the most normal thing in the common Christian life to pray together. And again, the Psalter is this giant collection of prayers to be prayed together corporately. And throughout church history, this has been understood. We have books of common prayer and set aside time to church to pray. We do this together regularly. And prayer, therefore, is given to us as individuals and to us as a body to do together. So, so what does this mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus starts out by saying, you all pray then like this? What does that mean? I think there's three things, three things. One, the first thing, that praying together should be our first inclination and not our last resort. Praying together should be our first inclination and not our last resort. And maybe, so maybe you as an individual, maybe you pray as an individual regularly. Uh, but when things get really bad, that's only when you open up and pray, for, pray with or for others. Or maybe you praise God and meditate on, in prayer on who he is and what he's done for you privately, but you see prayer together as a way to present requests like for healing or resolution in troubled relationships. When was the last time you sat down and prayed with others and just praised God for who he is? Probably pretty rarely. I think just the way that we are and the way that we're shaped as churchgoers in the 21st century is that when it's time to pray, we just take requests. That's the way that we do it. So firstly, one, that praying together should be our first inclination and not our last resort. Two then, reciting prayer should become part of our DNA. It should become part of our DNA. Scott McKnight writes this. He says about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taps into the great Jewish prayer tradition of memorized prayers and gives a new template of prayer. But the kind of template that is recited over and over again as a form of spiritual formation. We're formed by the things that we do regularly. This is just who we are. We're formed by the things that we do regularly. You don't even think about brushing your teeth. It's automatic. I've used this example several times in the last few weeks. It's automatic. You take your toothbrush, you open the drawer, you pull out the toothpaste, you put the toothpaste on the toothbrush, you put a little bit of water on it, you put it in your mouth, you brush, I don't need to go on. Like you do those things, you don't even think about it. You just do it. It just happens. It just happens for you. There's, a mar there's this side of the Christian life that is formed spiritually by the things that we do regularly. And so Jesus is communicating, pray this together in order that you might be formed spiritually together as a body. Prayer is meant to be this, auto, this automatic, as automatic as brushing our teeth, both as an individual and together as a body. And together as a body. 
Um, and so we need to do this together as often as we can in both private and public. So we're going to do something super awkward right now, and we're going to pray together. We're going to do it. It's going to be super awkward. Everyone just like looked at me like, are you crazy? Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to look at the screen together. We're going to pray these prayers. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to pray a prayer together from the Valley of Vision, which is a, a, Puritan, a Puritan book. So look at together at the screen with me. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Good. Okay, great. Now we're going to do something that we're less familiar with and we're going to pray this prayer from the Valley of Vision. Again, this is a Puritan prayer. This is meant to be prayed together corporately as a body um, on Sunday morning before worship even begins. So maybe we can do that later. But here, just read this with me. Oh Lord, We bless you for this day sacred to our souls when we can wait upon you and be refreshed. We rejoice in another Lord's day when we call off our minds from the cares of the world and think upon you without distraction. Let our retirement be devote, our conversation edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable, that our souls may be livened and lifted up. We are going to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise. Awaken in us every desire and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction. Give testimony to the word preached and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant. Awaken the careless. Reclaim the wandering. Establish the weak. Comfort the feeble-minded. Make ready a people for the Lord. Good, good, okay. We did it together. We can all take a deep breath, okay. And maybe that was a little awkward. Maybe that felt a little awkward just because in church settings in the past, we haven't done things. Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe that's something that you've done together. But I think together as a church, what Jesus is telling us to do is to infuse praying together in DNA. And maybe it's a little bit awkward. It probably felt a little bit weird, Um, especially when you all read awaken in us every cheerful emotion like a bunch of Vulcans. But like, it feels weird uh, to do things that we don't normally do. I'm sorry for the Star Trek reference. Um, It feels weird to do things that we don't normally do. And it feels weird to do things in a context like this where we think to ourselves, what do do other people think about this? Is this strange? And it feels weird when we're thrust into a situation where we're asked to do something that maybe would just be a little bit out of our comfort zone. So the, what does he imply you communicate to us? It communicates to us that praying together should be our first inclination and not our last resort. And that requires stepping into, probably, if you're not doing this regularly, something, situation that might be slightly awkward. And then reciting prayers together should become part of our DNA part of who we are. Uh, And then finally, finally, this is the most simple of the three things, the reasons why the you, or what the you communicates to us here in verse nine, that the command is for all of us. The command is for all of us. It's given to us as followers of Jesus to do all of the time with with regularity and consistency. And so what We don't need, as a body, is to set up a prayer meeting. That could be good, but we don't need to do that in order to pray together. 
We don't need to wait for others to ask for, to pray with us or for us. What we need to do is see that Jesus commands us to do it and do it. It really boils down to that. There's so many things in the Christian life that just boil down to the fact that we just need to see that God is commanding us to do it, and we just need to, because we have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that empowers us to follow all that Jesus commands us in the New Testament, because we have that Spirit, we just need to do it. We just need to take time, sit down, process through what He's commanding us to do, understand it, lean into the power of the Spirit, and do it. So Jesus says, pray like this. And the second word then that he says, I mean, the the first word, but not the implied word, pray. Pray then like this. Here's what we need to think a little bit more about this. I told you we're going to slow down. We need to think a little bit more about what Jesus says here. So let me give you a couple helpful definitions that that have helped me in my life. They're a little bit wordy. That's okay. But we're going to break them down a little bit more. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines prayer in this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And then John Bunyan, who's a Puritan, writes this in his book, Prayer. Prayer is a sincere, sensible affection pouring out of our heart or soul to God in Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. So if we're asked, if we're asked this question, what is prayer? We're asked this question, oftentimes we say, well, communication with God or it's just having a conversation with God, which is, which is true, but oftentimes it's not, it's not the whole picture. It's much, much more than that. And I think Jesus is communicating that to us in verse 9. It's much, much more than just communication with God. And for Jesus, the Lord's prayer shows us what that is. Prayer isn't just a way that we talk to God. It isn't just a way that we talk to God, but a channel through which we receive supernatural help to live a life that is honoring to God. So if, God, if Jesus gives us these commands, if Jesus gives us the command to pray, then we need supernatural help to, to do that with regularity and consistency. And that's the whole and complete way that Jesus has outlined for us in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Without supernatural help, without both as an individual and as a group of people corporately together as the church, without supernatural help, we're going to fail to live the way that Jesus describes for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And without supernatural help, you will be constantly enticed by the world and what the world values. And you will miss out on the beauty of God in Christ. To pray is a grace, and through it we receive the necessary grace to live lives that bring glory to God in the way that he originally intended for us to bring him glory. And so when we stumble or when we struggle to pray, it's because we're being enticed by one lie that the world is always feeding us. This lie goes back to the garden, back to Genesis chapter 3. It says this. This is what the evil one wants to tell you every single moment of every single day. Take control of your life. Take control of your life. That's what he whispered in Eve's ear in the garden. Take control of your life. Eat the fruit. But if you do, you will become like God. We buy into this. We buy into this mentality that we're in in charge. But the fundamental message of the Bible is quite the opposite. And the Christian life is one of complete dependence. 
It's not about scrounging something up on the inside and, and, and finding some internal power to, to make yourself or get yourself through your day or to make yourself into something. The Christian life is one of complete dependence. Okay, so if you were with us last week, we thought about Psalm 1611. Psalm 16 is a promise that we thought we need to reflect regularly on this promise. And the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I would challenge you to meditate on that verse this week. Write that one down, Psalm 1611. Spend time in prayer just praying through that one verse in in Psalm 16. This this promise is so counter to the idea that you're in charge or that you have control of your life. It is God who makes known to you the path of life, not a journey of self-discovery. It is God who we find our joy in, in his presence It's where we find joy. That is outside of us. True happiness is found in the inheritance that God has established for you, not the one that you've developed here on earth. And this is entirely offensive to the world. This is entirely offensive to the world because the world tells you, take control of your life, you're in charge. And here is why you neglect to pray. You neglect to pray because you believe that you are in control. You believe that you are in control because you don't know who you are. And you don't know who you are because you don't know who God is. And there's one way to know God and know who he is. And it's by receiving supernatural help to read and understand God's word. His revelation of who he is to us, comes to us in God's word. Right here, this is it. Prayer and God's word go hand in hand. These two disciplines go hand in hand. If you're not actively seeking to know God through his word, then you won't know who you are. And a totally dependent being cannot approach God without supernatural means that only he can provide. So here's a warning. Here's the warning this morning that comes out of this. If you think that you can pray and not actively seek God in his word, you're probably praying to a God that you've made up. If you think that you can pray and not actively seek to know God in his word, you're probably praying to a God that you've made up. And then on the flip side, if you approach the Bible without seeking in prayer the supernatural means to, needed to understand and apply it, then you're in jeopardy of constructing a God based in your own image. Based on fabricated commands and false information. So when Jesus says, pray like this, He's giving them the words to speak because it's through the, the word of God that we come to know God, that we come to know ourselves, and then we understand ourselves to be dependent beings who rely on supernatural means to come before and approach a holy God. So when Jesus says, pray like this, he's telling them both individually and corporately, know God, know who you are in light of who he is, and know what you've been called to. And know that prayer connects you to the supernatural source of power that you need to do all of those things. 
Everything that's been described in the Sermon on the Mount up until this point must come as a result of being plugged in to the supernatural power that God has granted us in Christ Jesus through the Spirit that dwells now inside of us. Therefore, he says, pray like this. Pray then like this. And he says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. This is the address of the prayer. Oftentimes we start with dear Lord or dear God or dear Jesus This is the address that he gives. He says, Our Father in heaven. Who are we seeking to know? We're seeking to know our Father. Who gives us an understanding about who we are? Our Father. Who gives us purpose and mission? Our Father. Immediately the phrase, Our Father in heaven, informs us of an amazing reality. God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, all-knowing, all-present, ever-present, God, we have an intimate relationship with him. He is our father. If you are in Christ, you have God as your father. If you are in Christ, you have God as your father. And a father who is always interested in bringing about your good. A father who is always interested in bringing about your good. He comforts you. He leads you. He protects you. He provides for you. He knows you. I look at my oldest son. I look at Abel. He's four. And I want him to, I see in him myself so clearly. And I want him to know. I want him to know that I love him. And I want him to know that he is loved. And I want him to know that I would do anything for him. I want to teach him. I want to show him all the things that he can do and everything that he can know and whatever it is that is possible in this life for him. And God, the one who made all things, who holds all things together, moment to moment is sustaining everything, loves infinitely more than I could ever begin to love as a father. Friends, you know that in Christ, you have an intimate relationship with God as your Father. You have an intimate relationship with God as your Father. He desires for you to come to Him in prayer as a small child babbling about this and that. Dad, I don't understand. Help me understand. Dad, will you help me? How often do you reflect on that reality throughout the course of the week? You have God as your Father, the creator of all things. You have an intimate relationship with Him. The answer is infrequently, then you will pray little. And in order to pray, in order to experience the supernatural grace to know God, you must reflect on who God is and how he has called you his child. Why would you have any reason to approach God if you do not see him as father? So Jesus starts the Lord's prayer with this address. He says, our father in heaven. And here's how it's said in the theological world. And maybe you say, oh boy, here comes theology. I'm not in that. Yes, you are. Calm down, move on. Here we go. God is imminent. God is imminent in our lives. That means that God is present and active in your daily life. Just like a father, an infinitely loving, good, gracious, patient, faithful father, God. Maybe your dad wasn't any of those things. But do you have a father-son relationship, a father-daughter relationship with one who is at your one who is all your dad isn't and much, much more? 
But there's another side of this, right? There's another side of this. God is imminent. He's ever-present in our daily lives. But there's another side of this, and Jesus says it here, in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Being your Father and having an intimate relationship with you points us to God's imminence. But the prepositional phrase in heaven, sorry, grammar again. Prepositional phrase in heaven points us to the fact that God is transcendent. That God is transcendent. He is both totally with us and near to us, accessible to us, and yet he is totally other. He is other. He is set apart from us. God is holy, set apart in a way that we are not yet holy and set apart. He is present, but he's in a different place. He's a place that he has welcomed us to, but we're not yet there. We have a relationship with him, an intimate father-child relationship, but there is more coming, more on the horizon for us. And something that's not yet fully realized, he is a creator, he is set apart from his creatures. He is strong, and therefore he's set apart from the weak. He is all-knowing, and there is set, set apart from the limited. And we could go on and on. And the idea of what makes God different from us is we are here on earth. He is in heaven. This drives Jesus to make the next statement. Maybe the most important statement in the Lord's Prayer. The next statement that he makes. So we have God's imminence. He's present with us. We have his transcendence. He is completely other from us. We hold those two things in perfect tension. When we say our Father in heaven. And then he says hallowed be your name. Now, that's a word we don't use very much, hallowed. I don't know. I don't, maybe you use it. I don't know. I've never heard any of you say hallowed. But hallowed simply means to honor as holy. And holiness is set-apartness, right? This points again to God's transcendence. Holiness is set-apartness. Set-apartness. We long to see our Father honored for his set-apartness, for his otherness, for his transcendence. Now, there's no doubt throughout Scripture that God is acting on behalf of his name. This is what God does. I think one of the clearest examples of this is Ezekiel 36.22. Therefore, say to, this is God instructing Ezekiel what to say. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, for which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And throughout the history of Israel, God was known by many names. But there was one name that was given to God that they they held to be God's true name. It was just four simple letters, what we would pronounce in the English language, transliterated to Yahweh is how we would say it. The nation of Israel would have seen those four letters as holy letters. They would have not spoken those four letters. They would have never said the name of God out loud. But in substitute, they would say something like Adonai which translates to Father or Master or Lord. And whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's standing in for those four holy letters. And this comes to us from, from Exodus 3, 13 through 15, where, where God speaks to Moses. I'll read it for us. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the name of God has great weight. He says, I am who I am. The name of God has great weight. And naming was very important in the ancient world. Absolutely 100% important. You were given a name, you in this room were given a name by your parents probably. That's the name you probably go by. And you give, as parents, you give names to your children. But God's name was never given to him. God's name was not given to him. He is God. He is eternal. He existed before time began. All the way into eternity past, his name was I am who I am. And his name, therefore, should be set apart as holy as the only one who has not been received, but the one that existed for all eternity. So he says, hallowed be your name. Your name has existed for all of eternity, and all of creation is moving in a direction where your name will be glorified ultimately. So this needs to be frequently stated in our prayers. God's ultimate aim is for his name to be established above all other names. This is God's ultimate aim to be his, for his name to be established above all other names. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, we make our aim also to establish God's name in our lives above all other names. Not your name, not the name of Caleb, but the name of God above all others. And friends, you need to see that this is supernatural grace that brings this reality into fruition. And go back to that lie that culture feeds us, right? The lie that says you're in control. You're not a dependent being. Take control of your life. To go back to that is to elevate your name above the name of God's. And if you're not praying these words regularly, you will undoubtedly seek to elevate your own name above God's through the pursuit of, maybe it's a promotion at work, through the pursuit of wealth and possessions or happiness, through the pursuit of what you want to do when you want to do it. And when we look at this, we should consider what God commands, what God gave Moses to command the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is from the Ten Commandments. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is not. What this means, this does not mean we say, oh my God, after our, after our football team loses at the last second. Or asking God to damn the food that, we, that we've burned for dinner. That has nothing to do with this. This has everything to do with the fact that we are actively, regularly trying to establish our own name above the name of, your, of our God. That's what it means to take our Lord, or the, the name of the Lord God in vain, is to seek to establish our name as higher than his. Scott McKnight, again, he writes this, that not praying for God's name to be established is a cold and shallow choice. He says this also, this is more about our hopes, our desires, our affections, and our aches than it is about what we're doing or not doing in the realm of behaviors. Again, we reduce that command to behaviors. Say, I'm just not going to say that. Don't say that. We say to our kids, just don't say that. 
says, again, this request casts light on what we most want to be raised high, God's name or something else. So in conclusion this morning, as we looked at these, this one verse, I think the heart of this one verse, and I think the heart of the Lord's prayer as a whole lies within one simple question. And I think we can expand that even out to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The question is, what do you desire? What do you desire? What do you, what do you long for? And we've asked this question. When I ask this question to individuals, I often just get partial answers or blank stares. So let me give you the answer. I'm just going to give you the answer to this question. As someone who inhabits sinful flesh, even if you're in Christ, as someone who established sinful flesh, it's one of two things. It's either do you desire your name to be hallowed or you desire for God's name to be hallowed. We can boil it down to this, this level. It is really this simple. And for many of us in this room, the answer to that question is our name over and over again, almost without exception. If you think to yourself, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. Then think for yourself just for a moment. How many times this week maybe you compared yourself to another person? Think for a moment how many times this week you trusted Netflix or a book or a a warm bath or, or the kid's bedtime to provide you peace. Think for a moment how many times this week you were unfaithful to a commitment because you thought you didn't have energy. Think for a moment how many times this week you thought, boy, if I just had X, then I'd be happy. Hallowed be your name points us to the unrelenting, pervasive desire to see our name lifted up and hallowed above God's. Because you've thought to yourself, at least I'm not like that person, or if I was only like so-and-so, things would be better. Or because you've thought to yourself, at least I'm not like that person, or you've thought to yourself, I desire peace and quiet now, and I'm unwilling to be patient for it. Or because you've faithful, or you, because you've failed to be faithful to to honor your spouse, well, he or she did the dishes, and you scrolled through Facebook on your phone. Because you dedicated yourself to reaching a fir- financial or personal goal, and you made a choice that hurt another person, or just failed to engage people altogether. So if you earnestly desire to see the name of God hallowed, like Jesus tells us to pray, then we will pray. And if we desire our own name to be hallowed, we won't see God as Father intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And if we desire our name to be hallowed above God's name, we will neglect to pray altogether. So we need to acknowledge then this morning that prayer is more than just talking to God. And this is, this is what this is. This is why verse 9 is so important. Through prayer, God wants to, God is going to impart to us supernatural help to know him and live according to his commands. We must be aware that everything that we are as Christians is a result of God's grace, the outpouring of grace on our lives. It is not a result of human activity, our own efforts, but it is all a result of who God is and what he's done for us on our behalf. Tim Keller in his book, Prayer, writes this, Prayer is, a, is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word 
and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. So prayer must flow out of an understanding of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And prayer must be aimed, prayer must be aimed at hallowing God's name, seeing God's name hallowed, set apart, lifted up, and exalted and glorified. And next week in verse 10 where he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll see that God is, prayer is geared towards establishing God's purposes here on earth.